0: The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Amen. Well, this morning uh, begins a brand new series that we're going to walk through. We are going to start this morning our study through the book of James and so this morning will be maybe a little different than most sermons in that it will be largely introductory. However, we're still going to get into God's word. And uh, so don't worry about that. But but, you know, if, if, how many of you have uh, either currently or in the past have been on a hiking or a backpacking trip and any anybody? OK, we have some, some people in the sermon. So when you, before you go on a backpacking trip or a hiking trip, what well, one thing ideally that you would do to help prepare yourself is to get a contour map. And, and to look through to study the major contours of that map to get a feel and a lay of the land to to uh, to uh, um orient yourself I was a, can't think of the right word to orient yourself uh, to what it, you're about to encounter and so that's what we're going to do this morning we're going to look at the major contours we're gonna major contours of the book of James to get a lay of the land as it were for the remaining series of our time in the book of James. How many of you have been to an open-air market in another country? Okay, similar hands. Uh, uh, those, those, these are our, our travelers uh, in the church. So, uh, Other than to get some tasty street food, why, why do tourists often go to these places? Well, one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons I've been to these open air markets is to get cheap, authentically looking but counterfeit items. Right? You, you, yeah, I remember going to Cozumel. We went on a cruise with our with our family, and, and we went to the open air market there, and uh, I got my first pair of folkleys. Now, if you don't know what folkleys are, it, it's a word that means fake Oakleys, uh, fake Oakley sunglasses. And so I wore them very proudly uh, to school the next school year. Everybody thought I was uh, you know, rolling in the dough and it was a $5 pair of Folklies. Uh But, uh, but, but counterfeit, counterfeit products abound in our world today, don't they? Uh, on November 16, 2023, federal authorities seized 219,000 luxury counterfeit products that were worth over $1 billion. And this happened in New York. And and these items ranged from fake Louis Vuitton and Gucci handbags to luxury clothing, shoes, and sunglasses. However, this crime of counterfeiting, it's not only uh, within the manufactured goods. There there was a guy in Canada back in 2012 named Frank Barossa. Uh, He counterfeited over $250 million worth of $20 bills. There's a whole process that he went through to get the right paper, and anyhow, $250 million worth of $20 bills. Interestingly, the Secret Service, which if you didn't know, they're the ones who are responsible to track counterfeit dollar bills. When they begin their counterfeit training with their agents, they have them study. Not all the different variations of counterfeit bills. No, they begin their training training. By studying and by intimately knowing the genuine money that is minted and printed by the U.S. government. They, they study genuine bills until they're able to master the look, the minute details, until they're able to master the look of the real thing. Then when they see the bogus money come through, they're able to quickly recognize it because they know the true bill Intimately. It goes without saying that great losses associated with counterfeit works of forgery, right? It, 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 it's a loss both to the genuine producer of those goods and also to the people who consume those goods because it devalues what they buy. However, the most ca- costly counterfeiting work in our world today is not of a counterfeit handbag or counterfeit money, but it's that of a counterfeit faith. And so that's why over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to study the real thing until we master the look of the of real, genuine, saving faith. We're going to look intently into the book of James and to see what true faith looks like in action. This is why the book of James was written to test and to confirm the validity of saving faith. And so last year, we spent a whole year studying the great and the deep and the glorious doctrines of the gospel. The doctrine of election, of redemption, of regeneration, repentance, of, of the killing effect of sin, the, of the amazing grace of God, the matchless love of Jesus Christ, the importance and the necessity of prayer, the birth, the new birth of the people of God, our, our new find, newfound identity of who we are in Jesus Christ now. We looked at the work of the Holy Spirit, how we are to know and to do the will of God. We also looked at how the gospel, how it shapes our marriages, how it shapes our parenting, how it shapes our work. And then we ended by looking at the spiritual protection we have against the forces of evil in the battle we are engaged with every single day. And there are other doctrines we covered that I didn't mention just now. We studied a lot of great doctrines of the faith this past But now we turn to the book of James to see these doctrines applied in action. This book shows us how the gospel is to be lived out. It shows us the visible fruit that should be evident in the life of a new creation in Christ. Or maybe to put it in oaky terms, this is where the rubber meets the road. The book of James is a litmus test for us. To see whether the gospel has actually changed our hearts or whether the gospel has only informed our heads. It's been often said that James is kind of like the New Testament Proverbs. It, maybe some of you have heard that before. It's a book full of wisdom and that's why it hints our, our series named Gospel Shaped Wisdom. And like the book of Proverbs, James packs a punch in short, sweet and to the point statements and then he moves on to the next Topic, But but one thing you may not know about the book of James is that it not only reflects the book of Proverbs, but it also builds upon Jesus's sermon on the Mount. And, And so there are 22 references to the Sermon on the Mount through the book of James that we'll touch on as we go through. But like the Sermon on the Mount, the book of James lays out the ethics of the kingdom and the expectations of kingdom life as Christians It addresses many practical issues in life, that of the trials that we face, poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, how we make plans, praying, what to do when we're sick, and a lot of other items. It touches most aspects of life. It's an intensely practical manual for Christian living. One that pushes us beyond mere doctrinal belief and pushes us into a life of doctrine-fueled obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout our study of James, we will clearly and I pray convictingly see the relationship between saving faith and our work in sanctification. On the one hand, James refers to faith 14 different times in this letter. But on the other hand, this letter from James is filled with commands. There are 108 verses in the book of James. And within those 108 verses, there are 59 commands for us to obey. Obedience is everywhere. James teaches us at a high level that there is no such thing as intellectual faith. True faith acts. Saving faith does. Or to put it another way, a faith devoid of works is no faith at all. In the book right before James, the book of Hebrews, the most popular chapter probably in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 11. And it's been often called the Hall of Faith. And so now while I'm about to summarize this chapter, notice with me the relationship between a person's faith and their action. A person's faith in how their faith is demonstrated or was demonstrated in their life. It's consistent all throughout. So Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch was taken up. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah received. By faith, Isaac invoked a blessing. By faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Joseph gave directions. By faith, Moses, he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, Israel crossed the Red Sea. Notice a trend here. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, Rahab welcomed the spies. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, they all by faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. All by faith. By faith, the people of God, Hebrews 11 says, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. It goes on to say, by faith, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, meaning that they were sewn into those. They were destitute, afflicted mistreated. These were people, as the author of Hebrews says, of whom the world was not worthy so as I just summarized Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, do you notice what kind of word always followed the phrase by faith? What kind of word was that? It was a verb, right? By faith and then a verb. By faith, action follows. True, genuine, saving faith does. Now, to be sure and to be very clear, genuine faith is not to be equated with our actions. We don't gain faith because of what we do. No, the only way we have saving faith is because of the work that Jesus Christ did for us in our place as a substitute. We cannot gain our own salvation by our works, nor can we contribute to our salvation, because as we've studied, salvation is what, church? By grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Our faith, it rests solely in what Jesus Christ has done for us in his perfect life, achieving a righteousness we could not get on our own. And he did so through he did so by doing that in his perfect life. And then he went to the cross to take our sin, to endure the punishment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven from our sins. And then three days after his death, what happened, church? Jesus rose from the dead. And so through his resurrection, he now gives us brand new eternal life in him. This is the gospel. And so the only appropriate response to what Jesus has done for us is to receive his free gift of salvation. Or as the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We cannot gain our salvation by our works. We cannot contribute to it. It is solely through faith in Jesus Christ. However, at the same time, The Bible, and specifically the book of James, it is clear in its teaching that genuine faith always leads to a gospel-shaped, a spirit-trusting, a Christ-glorifying, and a neighbor-loving kind of obedience to God's word. As Martin Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is to be accompanied by good works. According to James, we are not to just hear the word. We are to do the word. And so if we habitually don't live in accordance with God's word, then our own life becomes a mirror to us, showing that our faith is dead, that we don't possess True, genuine saving faith. I, I know when I was I was struggling in my life whether to know whether I was a Christian or not a Christian, and so I, I it was a different the book of First John, but similarly to the book of James, I compared my life to the truth to the marks of what a true Christian is to look like, and I evidently saw that my life did not reflect that of a Christian, and and as a result, through that, the Lord convicted me and saved me. My my prayer is that through our study. God will use this book to either confirm or to convict us of, our, of what true saving faith is. Again, within these 108 verses are contained 59 commands. And so I want to encourage you during our study to take time to examine your life and to do what the apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10. And that is to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling in your election. Genuine faith always leads to gospel-shaped, spirit-trusting, Christ-glorifying, and neighbor-loving obedience to God's word. I know that's a lot of hyphenated words right there, but so I'll repeat it. Genuine faith always leads to gospel-shaped, spirit-trusting, Christ-glorifying, and neighbor-loving obedience to God's word. So with that introduction given, let's look this morning at the first verse of the epistle of James. And I promise we will not go one verse at a time. Uh, But this morning, we're just going to look at the first verse. Read with me James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in in the dispersion, greetings. And so you'll notice their church. That first word, James. Right, he, he is introducing himself as the author. And so, James was a half brother of our Lord. However, despite his close proximity to Jesus, growing up with Jesus, John chapter five, uh, John chapter seven, verse five says that Jesus, uh, that James, along with his brothers, they rejected the notion that their brother Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. Proximity to Jesus does not equal saving faith in Jesus. But soon after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Paul says that Jesus appeared to James. And though we don't have more, I wish we had more details on what the interaction was like. We we don't know what that encounter was like, but just imagine with me, if you would. Imagine being in the presence of your once dead, now resurrected and living half-brother. The one you grew up with, the one you played games with, and the one you worked alongside in the family business. Just imagine what that moment must have been like for James to see his resurrected half brother. And in seeing the resurrected Christ, James's rejection gave way to receiving Jesus for who he truly is. Now, after becoming a follower of Christ, James would soon be a key leader within the church at Jerusalem. He resided over the all-important Jerusalem council, which is recorded in Acts 15, where the apostles and the leaders of the church, they were wrestling with the question of whether or not salvation required obedience to the Mosaic law or whether it was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And so he was a key and influential leader within the early church. And in the parlance of today, you could say that James was the quote-unquote senior pastor of the, of the church of Jerusalem, an influential church until his death as a martyr in AD 62. So that's who James was. Now that we're acquainted with him, let's see how he introduces and describes and identifies himself to his audience. Look with me at what he says. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I know I've shared this before, but uh, it's a little bit extra, but uh, but I think it's helpful to see that in the Greek, the syntax, that means where the words are placed in a sentence, how a sentence is put together in the Greek. That doesn't matter. Word word order does not matter because the structure of a sentence, it's just it's determined by what's called declension of words. You may be saying that's Greek to me. (laughs) Don't worry. This is the main point because words don't matter. The word ordered, because word order does not matter in the Greek, sometimes it therefore does matter because the author uses that to highlight and to emphasize something. And so they will play with the word order in a sentence to highlight a truth. And so why do I share that? I share that because in verse 1, in the original Greek, it goes something like this. James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave you see the inversion, the reversal of orders there? Right out of the gate, James makes it abundantly clear, the one whom he serves and his relation to his master. In other words, I think what James is saying here in, in switching the order there is, he comes first in all things, and I am last. Now, put yourselves in James's shoe Or maybe his sandals. That's a better uh, contextual application. If you were the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you think you would have opened up your own letter? If it were me, the intro might read something along the lines of Seth, the one who lived every day with Jesus for 30 years of his life. Oh, and by the way, the half-brother of Jesus. And, if that weren't enough, the leader of the most influential church in the Roman Empire. Right. That, that's how I probably maybe would have introduced myself. That's our natural propensity, isn't it? To put forth our credentials for all to see, it, to humble brag about the important people we know and who's more important than the son of God. Right. And, and after we finish humble bragging, then to make sure people know how important we are with what we do. That's our tendency in life, but not so with James. He does not describe himself as Mary's son or as the Lord's brother. He doesn't refer to his position as the head of the Jerusalem church or mention that the resurrected Christ personally appeared to him. Instead, how does he describe himself in this first verse? He describes himself as the doulos, as the servant, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What humility for us to model and to imitate today, right? Right. Now, this word that James uses here to describe himself, doulos or bondservant, it depicts a slave, a person who is deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master. Absolute obedience and loyalty to his master was required of every doulos, every slave. And so there was another word used in the Greek for to describe a servant. But this is someone who was made a slave. A doulos was not made a slave. A doulos was born a slave. And so what James is saying here is that from the very moment of his new birth, from the very moment he was made a new creation through faith in Christ Jesus, from that moment on until his dying breath, he had become of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ a doulos, a slave. And so to apply this to yourself this morning, If someone were to ask you, who are you? Tell me about yourself. If you were to introduce yourself to someone for the very first time, how would you answer? Would you begin with where you're from, where you grew up, who you're married to, how many kids you have, what your job is, your favorite hobbies, or other details about your life? Or is your own personal identity so wrapped up in your new life found in Jesus Christ that like James, your response would be something along the lines of, hey, how's it going? My name is Seth. And before anything else in life, I am a Christian and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my desire in my life is to glorify him with all that I do. Who who are you? How would you answer that question? How you do so shapes how you will live your life and who you will live your life for. But not only do we need to ask the question of our identity, we also need to ask this question. Who is Jesus to you? I think many people within the American church and and maybe someone here this morning Many people see Jesus merely as a means to an end. To them, Jesus is nothing more than a genie in the bottle who grants them their wishes of salvation, of heaven and no hell, of of having nice relationships, of having good children, having comfort and safety, successful job, health and wealth. Now, many people will never say that out loud, though there are some false teachers in the church today who who are proponents of that. It's called the prosperity heresy which sadly started here in Tulsa, there are false teachers who shamelessly speak like this and say it out loud. But while many wouldn't talk like this, it's said loudly by people's theology, by their prayers, and by their focus in life. This kind of idolatrous and adulterous thinking can be summarized in this way, that Jesus, he came to give you your best life now. In his book, Slave, John MacArthur, he writes this. It's a little long, but hang with me. He says, while servants are hired, slaves are owned. Believers are not merely Christ's hired servants. They are his slaves, belonging to him as his possession. He is their owner and master, worthy of their unquestioned allegiance and absolute obedience his word is their final authority his will their ultimate mandate he goes on to say having take up taken up their cross to follow jesus followers of jesus have died to themselves and now can say with paul i have been crucified with christ and it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me church as christians we are slaves of christ what a radical difference that truth should make in our daily lives. We no longer live for ourselves. Rather, we make it our aim to please the Master in everything we do. And so I ask again Who is Jesus to you? Is he your genie in the bottle whose job is to give you what you want in life? Or is he your Lord? And your master, who is worthy and deserving of your total, unreserved, unqualified, and unending allegiance and reverence and worship and devotion and obedience. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus, he gives this parable of a servant of a doulos, who even after a long day of plowing in the field... He was still expected to serve his master until the master retired for the night. And Jesus, in building upon this parable, he says this. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you are to say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Church family, what we do for Christ in this lifetime, it pales in comparison to what he has done for us. And when you experience the grace of God, when you begin to see all of the undeserved ways that God has shown his favor and his kindness and his power and his riches to you through Jesus Christ. When you truly begin to experience the grace of God, it will inevitably lead you to a humility, a humility that says we are unworthy servants. We are only doing our master's bidding. So who is Jesus to you? Is he your butler or is he your gracious master? And who are you? Would you say this morning you are of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave? Does this identity govern the way you live? Our prayer is that God, through our study of James, God does a work within our church such that we grow in living as losses, as slaves as bondservants of our King. Because as we will discover in our study of James, this, this kind of living, it is the pathway to true freedom in life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.